Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Dr. Linda Kim. Linda is the founder and CEO of Moon Mental Health, a holistic mental health care provider designed to support women through all phases of their lives. She is also the founder of Love Luck, a company founded on a simple premise, clear, accessible, and trusted evidence-based mental health education and parenting support for women and their families. Linda is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist with nearly 20 years of training and clinical experience specializing in women's mental health and coaching. It is an honor to welcome someone who is so passionate about offering mental health care tailored specifically to the unique challenges women face during Women's History Month. I hope you enjoy this episode. Linda, thank you so much for joining me today on For Your Listening Pleasure. For listeners who maybe have never heard of you, would you mind just giving a brief introduction? Sure. Mallory, first off, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you today. I'm so excited to be here and and talk um, all things, you know, mental health and life and so forth. So let me introduce myself. I'm Linda Kim. I'm an actively practicing adult psychiatrist. Um, I am um, proud to say that I've been able to serve hundreds, if not thousands of patients over my career thus far. And I was previously in a large uh, healthcare organization, but now have an entirely virtual group practice and also starting um, a new company in addition to that to really spread the word of mental health, provide psychoeducation and easier access for people to learn that mental health can be really clear and simple. Um, I'm also a mom of three teenage daughters. So I get um, eye rolls and uh, frustrated grunts directed at me all the time. And I'm also a proud owner of another dog, which, and she's a female. So my husband gets to have four girls in, in the house all the time. So really happy to be here. No, thank you. And when we spoke last time, one thing that we kind of started our conversation off with was this immigrant mindset. Uh, both your parents immigrated and that mindset really played a role not only in your work ethic, but also life growing up. Would you mind explaining how that mindset really kind of defined you? Absolutely. Well, I just have to, you know, express so much gratitude to my mother and my father for um, really ingraining in us this notion of gratitude with um, whatever you have at the time. When I was much younger, my parents had immigrated when they were early, both of them separately. So my father went to pursue graduate uh, undergrad uh, graduate school in Germany, a completely foreign language, and um, didn't even you know uh, know anyone really there. And then my mother actually went to become a nursing student there, and they met there and fell in love. And then they you know actually moved around. They were in Germany, then they're in Canada, and they went to the U.S. And I was the very first um, daughter born in the U.S. in Los Angeles, and that's where my name comes from, actually. So, uh, Linda, um, to really um, commemorate the fact that I was born in Los Angeles, we're very proud of that. Um, but to think about that mindset from our very early age, um, we were, you know, taught to work hard, but also to always constantly be thinking about our next side hustle. You know, I remember family conversations about 
what would be a good idea? What would you want to do? What would you, you know, do for a business idea? And we started that early on and um, till this very day. So my father was highly educated. He was a doctorate in chemical engineering. He got it from Korea, learning Germany, he did his whole dissertation in Germany, which just boggles my mind. And then he came here and he couldn't find a job. So he became a lab assistant and um, which really you didn't need any education at all. He was the most highly qualified, highly trained person in the lab. Um, and he worked up his ranks, you know, through the ranks. And then finally, he decided to follow the entrepreneurial spirit and he started his own company. But I think that taught us to just, you know, um, work as hard as you can, even though sometimes the odds are stacked against you. And then to just believe in yourself and go for it, you know, and I think it was that willingness to just, you know, go for it and try something new. And, and it's okay if you fail, but just try, you know, that really engendered in me in my career path you know the willingness to just you know try something out become an entrepreneur in the very end when you told me that story I was shocked because he was so educated and the mm -hmm. fact that not only was he educated in Korea then in Germany but then coming to the United States was unable to get a job really mm -hmm. broke my heart because here's someone who is so qualified but because they were educated in a different country, they didn't have the opportunity to continue their career where they left off. But he really came here so your family could be in the United States and have the opportunities that maybe he didn't in, you know, the other countries that him and your mom were in. And that always yeah. stuck with me. And again, I mean, I just, you know, to think about him starting the company in it literally was one corner of our living room. You know, we had um, a tiny, tiny place that we all lived in. You know, we would travel. And I remember my mom was so mad one time because we drove from Arizona to California and um, we couldn't stop at a McDonald's because he didn't want to spend the money. I mean, we really just, we were poor. We were, you know, making do. We were definitely living that immigrant lifestyle where we, um, you know, we, had to figure out again um, how to make things work you know when things aren't easy and you know to witness that and to see the gratitude even you know with all the hardship and then you know just the 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 outcome of the work ethic and you know of just the drive I think it was really powerful um, for me growing up and then you went on to attend the University of Chicago. So you've spent time in my home city. I would say that's yes. where you went to school. Did you always think you were going to go into medicine? Was that something because it was a career where you would have a job, you would have a good income? Was that encouraged in your family or was that something that you decided you were interested in? You know, it's interesting because um, I never really thought growing up that my parents would pressure me one way or the other. Um, I told you uh, earlier that um, we would be planning, you know, possible side hustles, you know, from a very early age at the dinner table. And so I actually thought I'd be going into business, you know, and so I thought heavily about, you know, traditional business field, either consulting or, you know, uh, financial world and things like that upon graduating from college. And um, at the same time, though, I realized that um, this was something I couldn't ignore in terms of my love for, you know, like the body and the the, the anatomy and just um, 
So I felt almost I was kind of going a grain against the grain of what I was really geared up for um, when I ended up in medicine. And what I love is you followed your now husband mm-hmm. to Boston and you need to find a job. I'm very much that kind of person too, that I always need to be working. I'll, I'll work whatever job to kind of do what I need to do to get to where I want to be. But the job you ended up working at while you were in Boston was at Harvard with a focus on eating disorders. Yeah. So again, after I realized that I wanted to go into medicine, so I was like, oh, oops, okay. I go this path, then you quickly have to do lots of things like, you know, okay, take the MCATs, but also, you know, um, really show how invested you are in the medical field. And so I had to hurry up and start doing some research. So um, I grad after graduating, I um, graduated actually a little bit early. So I went back to Los Angeles and did some um, uh, emergency room um, uh, research. And so I got to work in the Cedar sinai emergency room for about a year. And then I moved over to Boston because my husband, my now husband, decided to go to graduate school there. So then I had to quickly find a new job and I moved cross country to follow him and then started to do research um, uh, with Ann Becker, who's an amazing eating disorders clinician and researcher and anthropologist, actually. And then um, I think that was the beginning of my interest in the mental health field. And let's go into that a little bit more. Obviously, eating disorders are something that a lot of people, not just women, a lot of people struggle with. And it's one of those things that people just think, oh, well, why don't you just eat? Or you're choosing to kind of have this. That's the stigma around it, not realizing it is a mental health issue. It is something that's a lot deeper than, oh, why don't you just eat? Like, what's Mm -hmm. the issue? Or just stop purging or whatever it can be. What were those first few months like when you started this work? Because I can imagine it can weigh on you. It's a heavier, it's hard to watch sometimes. I'm sure it's also heartbreaking to be a part of. But what were those first few months? Do you remember what that was like? Absolutely. I mean, and so I just want to reiterate that um, I was absolutely, this is definitely before medical school and kind of in the research arena where um, it is a little, uh, and um, uh, different in terms of, you know, in the research field, you start looking at very, very specific topics and you, you conduct research in very specific ways. And so, you know, even when you are doing a research, you ha- it's controlled. And so you have to look at, you know, inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria. So it gets, I think that, you know, in terms of that regard, a lot more was um, not fancy and sexy at all, but a lot more like data entry at that point. And, um, you know, looking through, you know, acceptable candidates and entrants and those kind of things. So um, I was a little bit protected and shielded from some of that at an early stage in terms of that specific work. Um, But obviously, in terms of being able to see and witness the depths of severity of the symptoms and how much they can influence patients and their families. I was, you know, it was definitely a significant introduction, you know, for me at that point. And then is that, was that the catalyst that made you realize you really want to focus on more mental health or what made you take that track when you did actually go to med school? So I 
think I popped around into a lot of different, I told myself going into medical school that I would keep my options open. I would really be, allow myself to remain curious and, you know, without any preconceived notions of what I wanted to do, just really fully immerse myself in every rotation and experience and let myself, you know, then value and make a, a decision at the later time. And so I actually thought I was going to go into a surgery um, for a long period of time. Um, either a surgical subspecialty or surgery, but I loved surgery. I loved the OR. I love, you know, the, every aspect you can imagine. Um, and it's interesting because I do hear often that sometimes um, surgery and psychiatry can be really similar in a way, even though you think they're polar opposite. <laughs> so it might be either the gratification, the initial gratification or delayed gratification, but I have heard that like, you know, uh, more than a handful of times. But in the end, um, you know, I loved surgery, but I realized that um, uh, I had to be really practical about my lifestyles. So um, I was married and I knew I wanted to have children. I actually had two kids in residency and I wanted to have them, you know, early on. And um, I knew that surgery was, you know, a lifestyle decision for me that I could not entertain at that point, just because, again, I didn't have family around. I didn't have supports. My husband and I were, you know, transcontinental, right? From my family, his family was in Korea. So even more, you know, it was even further away. And so I just had to be realistic about um, what I wanted to do in terms of my lifestyle choices. And the fact is, is that I loved psychiatry when I did my rotation at the very end. And um, I knew that was it. I loved hearing the stories. I mean, I'm an avid reader. And I just, each story, it was like an invitation to me to enter someone world you know and I could see their 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 lives and like the characters in their story that you know I get introduced to I just it was so engrossing for me and so fulfilling and so I ended up in psychiatry and I, I love it to this day and you as you mentioned earlier you were part of a larger practice in the state of California a larger institution um, that really delivers so much health care to like the entire state what yeah. was that like? Because you're kind of in a machine. And I think with mental health, sometimes it's good to slow down and we'll kind of talk about how you took a different step uh, to have a little bit more focus on patients. But what was that first few, almost a decade, a little less mm -hmm. that you spent in that larger um, organization? So I went in almost as a stepping stone. So I did my medical school and residency in Boston, and I knew I wanted to move to California at some point. And that was a good transitional step for me. I thought I would do that for a few years and then figure out what was next in my career. And I went in and um, I obviously stayed, but I, I believed in the mission of trying to provide the best quality care for a larger population. And they do that well, I have to say. Um, it's, you know, so in the beginning, I was 100% clinical, just seeing patients every single day. And I felt like that was actually my second residency. I'm at this point, I think without that experience, um, I feel prepared to see anything that walks through my door, any diagnosis, any intensity level, any severity, like I feel very, very confident and equipped to really manage, you know, any situation psychiatrically, mental health wise, because I've seen it and done it and I've done it multiple times now. So I'm so grateful for that experience. 
And then I have to say with the organization, they gave me a big gift. And that gift was the gift of allowing me to step into a role, even though I was a young woman of color. You know, it was, I was there for a few years. I proved my worth. I raised my hand. I saw the patients. I felt good about the work. And then when the role of chief came up and I applied for it, they, they selected me, you know, and I was given that opportunity. And for those who maybe aren't as familiar with the structure of the medical uh, field or never watched one of the 19 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, can you explain what being chief means? Because it is a very big honor. And as you mentioned, not only as a female, but someone who's younger and a woman of color, um, it's a hard role to get regardless of who you are, but especially being you know, having those characteristics also. So I'm glad you asked that because being chief of a department is kind of like being CEO of a small company, you know, and I will say that psychiatry, interestingly enough, is one of the largest departments in a hospital. So I think we're probably uh, on par, maybe a little, little less than perhaps like internal medicine. And the unique thing about um, psychiatry is that um, so um, if you think about doctors, they usually have a team of like uh, doctors, nurses, you know, maybe medical assistants. But in my role, I was head of psychiatrists, MDs, pharmacists, nurses, therapists, right? And then, and then including on top of that, you have the inpatient, um, uh, you know, a hospital liaison that we cover mental health issues in the, the general hospital, but also we have an intensive outpatient program. We have an outpatient program, eating disorders program, and then you have adult psychiatry, then you have child psychiatry. So it was a large department with a um, few hundred employees that is in charge of managing in the budget over um, different medical centers. So it definitely was a large role. And I have to say um, they were very good at um, trying to prioritize um, clinicians making decisions, you know, administrative decisions, which I believe is one of the, um, I think, greatest assets that they have in that institution. And then after that, you became the chair and the director for regional mental health for Northern California. At that point, you had been there for a while. And I always wonder with doctors, is it hard to go home at night? You have young kids, you have a husband, you're hearing stories or seeing patients. Is it hard to shake that off at the end of the day when you go home? Do you sometimes bring your work home? And if you do, what do you do to try to relax or try to be more in the moment when you're not at work? So I'm going to split your question apart into two pieces because um, the the role that I stepped into as you know, kind of regional director um, for Northern California was definitely a different role than my chief role. Chief role really was more of thinking about like local hospital operations where um, the regional director role is more about thinking about strategy and um, operations across the entire 15 or so medical centers throughout Northern California. So you're really thinking about how to deliver the entire paradigm of mental health care across 
you know, many facilities serving, you know, several million members, right? And, and what, what is the thinking behind that? How can you, you know, start to solve the problem of mental health crisis as an organization when everyone has not enough clinicians, right? When there's way too much demand for any health system, and you really start to have to think not only creatively, but actually, what could possibly work, right, within the constraints of like, you know, brick and mortar, like what we have technology wise, right? So that was like a really amazing opportunity. And I think to answer your question, in terms of that, it was a large role, like large role. So I think what keeps me awake at night, you know, in terms of that, there are things that you, you, you hold, right? Like there are, you know, on the clinical side of things, there are patients that you think about, you know, as your like head has hit the pillow and you're worried that they're not going to show up to your appointment the next day, you know, if they're in acute crisis, if they're suicidal, if you did all that you could, you know, to help them in terms of their times of need. And like, um, I will say that's, that's um, painful and it's hard and it's heavy um, because these are people's lives sometimes that you hold and you're trying to do your best. And um, so, but I think ultimately it's, you know, through your training, you are trained, you know, in all of our residents training and things like that to, to learn how to hold that happiness and also to learn how to hold and, and keep a little bit of distance so that you can continue to do the work, right? Otherwise it becomes too unbearable um, if you worry, you know, and it becomes too heavy. On the flip side of that, in terms of the administrative roles, um, it's, um, you know, I, I can't lie and not say that, you know, you come home at like six and then you shut off the computer and you're done for the night. Like most times that didn't happen. Most times I would say my husband and I, after we put the kids to bed, we open up our laptops and we're sitting side by side and our laptops and I'm charting and I'm doing, you know, work for the next day and he's doing his thing for his work. So um, definitely um, a, a lot of side by side, you know, like catching up at work, you know, in the evenings as well. In 2020, you left and you started Moon Mental Health as well as Love Luck. But let's mm-hmm. talk about Moon Mental Health because you started that in January 2020. No one knew what was on the horizon and how the shift happened with the pandemic. And I think one thing we all saw was our mental health plummeted between isolation, between the cultural uprising and what was kind of coming up from the surface and racism, anti-Semitism yeah. was coming up. You saw death happening all around you on TV, in the hospitals, it was hard to feel uplifted, feel good. But you decided to start your own holistic mental health care practice. One, why did you decide to leave that secure paycheck, health insurance, that organization was like tried and true to go out on your own I think that's my first question. Then we can Mm -hmm. dive into a little bit more of what you saw that first year. So um, we talked briefly about kind of following your partner to wherever they go. And so that also was part of the reason. He and I was really focused on intent on building my track record within that organization. And I, you know, I'll say I was rocking it, right? And moving up and yet, you know, we are partners, we are, you know, moms and, you know, when, so it was really more um, largely due to a personal um, change and circumstance where we had to move and so forth that, you know, prompted that. But another one I found was that um, 
I did want to flex a creative side that um, I felt like I, I couldn't really exercise as much. So when you are in a large hospital organization and you're under, you know, I will say pretty heavy, you know, regulatory scrutiny and you have all these rules and regulations, you have to, you know, every decision you make, you have to run up the, you know, like the leadership channel and vet it and, you know, and things like that. And you have to make sure that, each decision and move actually doesn't work just for you, but it works for however many medical centers, right? However many people, you know, like d different, you know, team members. And so like a, a, it, it really is the idea of that consistency of care, right? And then, you know, so some things that might be amazing as a one-off, there's just no way you could spread it to another medical center or like have it, you know, performed consistently. And so, so that, um, I realized that I, you know, wanted to flex a very kind of more creative um, uh, side of myself, you know, in terms of my next career move. And that's why I decided, well, you know, I probably won't find, you know, that ability in another large, you know, organization or insurance company or that kind of thing. And so I just decided to just, you know, branch off on my own. And I, I think it was really my childhood and my upbringing that, you know, also influenced me to just become an entrepreneur and create something of my own. With that new venture, it kind of makes sense that you would at some point start something on your own. I think just like that mentality of what you watched your dad do and kind of having that instilled in you, it was going to come out at some point. And I think that it probably came out at the time where uh, society needed it the most, which was sure. that first year. And you really focus on women's health and mental health realistically. But what did you really see start coming through when you were getting more back into the face-to-face -face practice talking with women? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I want to say that one of the reasons why I decided to focus on women's mental health is, um, uh, again, a, a couple of different reasons. First off is that I am surrounded by women. So I have three daughters. I have two sisters in my extended family, like all the cousins are girls. So I feel like that's just where my own personal passion is. Um, second is that just demographically, if you look at like the, you know, the prevalence studies, you know, you know, women are more affected by mental health issues than men are, you know, depression, anxiety, so forth, eating disorder, you know, all of that. And so it kind of made sense. And also, too, in terms of the people that request care, you know, women make up, you know, two thirds of even, for example, the total U.S. dollar amount that's spent on mental health care. So kind of just naturally, maybe as an entrepreneur, I figured, OK, that's, you know, the demand is there. And obviously, too, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, all the things that you mentioned before all the strife, all the emotional angst, you know, COVID isolation, increasing depression and anxiety rates, teen adolescence, social media usage, all those things combined, right? You know, in terms of feeling like I could, you know, find a different way, you know, to um, think about mental health care. And honestly, I find that when I, you know, working with patients, so, you know, for Moon Mental Health, it's 100% clinical, right? Like I'm not doing any of these like, you know, labor bargaining or <laughs> regulatory type things. It really is 100% face-to-face clinical, which is amazing. And I started to become a lot more alert to how women really wanted to think about their mental health care. So, you know, it's it's um, it's more nuanced. I mean, I, you know, people want a more holistic view. It's not just about, you know, kind of what you talked about before, like 
you know, what I medications I could prescribe or the, the 45 minutes or 50 minutes in that one session a week that I have with them. It's actually talking about all the other 167 hours in a week, right? It's life. It's how do I manage my, you know, three kids who are crying and yelling and then my mom just fell and I need to take to the hospital and this job and this and my partner's not doing enough to help. And then, you know, like I don't have, I can't pay the rent or I can't do this or like so many things that actually are almost kind of ignored and and actually a big one not to even mention hormonal issues right like you know pms i i rarely asked about that i have to admit in medical school and like in residency i rarely asked about are you tracking your cycles are you finding that your irritability or anxiety or depression gets worse in the luteal phase or right before you pay like i i didn't you know i didn't ask about well where are you in terms of you know are you perimenopausal are you menopausal like how where are you there and, you know, we fact the matter is that, you know, the hormones are likely the reason why there's more mental health issues in women. I wasn't even asking about it. So I was through this, I was able to really kind of appreciate, you know, how people wanted to think about their health, wanted to think about their mental health, think about their daily habits, you know, what can they do for, you know, like life habits and, you know, their, you know, movement and exercise and all of that in addition or part of their mental health treatment plans. So I really like that ability that I could start thinking very holistically about people. You just touched on so many things that I'm nodding my head to because Mm -hmm. you don't realize this. One, as a female, I think, you know, last time I saw one of my doctors, she's like, oh, are you stressed? I'm like, I don't feel stressed. I'm sure I am because when Mm -hmm. I start to think about I have this on my plate, this is concerning, this, that, everything else, and I don't even have kids. But I think that a lot of women just say, well, I'm, I'm a mother or I have yeah. to deal with my parents or my job's stressful. It just is what it is. Yes. But like, that doesn't mean you don't need some support or you don't, exactly. you don't deserve to say, yes, like I do feel depressed. Yes. I do feel anxious. And then the hormones play a huge role that no one ever talks about. No one talks about even, um, Throughout your cycle, I learned there are certain times and kinds of workouts you should be doing depending on where you are hormonally or what kind of foods you should be eating more during those stages of your cycle. No one talks about that and how that does affect so much. Why do you think women are afraid, not so much afraid, but why do you think we don't ask these questions or why is there not more money being put towards research and educational tools to inform people about these things? Well, I think there's, I have to say there is a nice positive trend in that women's health issues are becoming hot right now, especially in like the tech world. So infertility, you know, um, there's um, PMS, PMDD, but even now menopausal, you like new startups really focusing on those kind of things, even one of my podcast guests, Sally Mueller, started Womanist because mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. started going through menopause and she went to the doctor at Mayo and uh-huh. there wasn't a lot of information. She looked at the products that he was telling her to mm-hmm. use and she said, absolutely not. And That's created right. her own brand that really focuses on both like pre and you know, menopause, because there really is no mm-hmm. post-menopause, I learned. Once you're in menopause, mm-hmm. it's you forever. In it. mm-hmm. No one knows that, or I mm-hmm. didn't at least. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many, you know, ways to think. And, and I think it, 
speaks to, you know, the fact that many things, even, you know, I could start to, you know, list off, like even medical studies in terms of, you know, pharmaceuticals, right, in terms of treatments, interventions, they were very male dominated and male focused. And until you have, you know, these, like who you describe these amazing women who are like, you know what, I have this problem. I know every other woman has this problem. Let's do something about it because it's important. You know, I, I think that's starting to happen more now, which is, is truly awesome. And the other thing that I think is starting to become less taboo is talking about IVF, infertility issues, postpartum, depression. Mm-hmm. Those were things that no one ever talked about. You just kind of sucked it up and suffered in silence. And it's right. nice now that the conversations are starting to be had. But I think you even see sometimes with older generations, if you talk about it, they the look on their face is like, I can't believe you're sharing this with people. They feel uncomfortable. Sure, sure. You know, I was on a talk with um, this wonderful you know, organization, Women in Network, and um, I was just speaking a little bit about being a professional, a woman in the workplace, all the things that we don't talk about. Um, where all of us worry, but um, we just have never said out loud. For example, I remember I was um, giving a talk when I was with a large healthcare organization, and there were probably several hundred people in the room. I was giving kind of like the introductory talk, and I had my period, and I was deathly afraid that I leaked and it was going to show. And so everything I had, everything moved, but I could not turn around. And while I'm giving a speech, the only thing I could think about was that like, oh my gosh, you know, and this is the thing that women we face like all the time, all women get their periods. Right. And even I saw on the news about like Wimbledon about needing to wear the whites, right. And how much of an impact psychologically it is for periods needing to wear whites when you're on the, you know, when you're trying to perform and all these things that like, um, it's no mystery that women get their periods, right? And yet we would never allow ourselves to talk about it, even something like that, right? Or even say that, you know, and so like, again, all these things that were taboo that we feel so uncomfortable talking about, I think, again, the more that we talk about it, even with infertility, even with, you know, PMS, PMDD, you know, all going through menopause, like, remember the date, like, you couldn't say that you're having a hot flash, you had to say, oh, excuse me, I'm going to excuse my, you know, and then, but come on, you know, it's like, it's, this is something that's natural. And um, so I think the more that we can talk about and share our experiences, I think the more powerful it can be, and we can then do something about it. And I really feel that's very strongly aligned with mental health and stigma and us not talking about it. And the more that we can talk about it openly and share and, you know, reduce the stigma, the more we can do about it. You know, it's so funny. You mentioned that story when you were giving that speech, because mm-hmm. what popped into my head is ever since I've ever gotten my period, I refuse to wear white. Even, uh-huh. even if it's like not my week, I still yeah. won't wear white. Cause what if I spot what That's if, right. like something it's, and it's that mental block in my head. Someone mm-hmm. the other day asked like, Oh, don't you have white pants? I'm like, no, no. Because in my head, I'm <laughs> like, you never know. Like it could happen. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What are some of the trends you've seen since starting your own company when you're speaking to these women? Like what are, I would say like the biggest trends where people are kind of suffering and what are the biggest trends where you see um, 
us like on the upswing or treatments that have been helpful? One of the biggest trends is uh, uh, right along with this topic that we're talking about, like, why don't we talk about it? Right. So one of these things that, you know, when I see a woman for infertility issues and depression related to that, or even postpartum anxiety or depression or postpartum OCD, the first thing that a woman might say is, oh my God, I feel so alone. Like it's only happening to me. And of course, with your experience as an NM1, yeah, it is only happening to you. In my chair, when I see hundreds of thousands of people, you know, actually, I know that it's so common, right? You are not the only one that, you know, like has these images, like really graphic, you know, images of, you know, harm coming to your child, like, right? It doesn't make you a bad mother, but you feel that way. And yet, I mean, I've seen it many, many, many times. I've seen people get better. I've seen, you know, so I can feel very confident right? That it's not just to you. It's okay. You are going to get through this. It doesn't mean, you know, all these things that you're thinking. And so that's actually because of that, you know, it's actually made me really compelled to somehow build a trend of community, right? And so that's why in Love Luck, I'm really thinking, okay, well, we go through such common experiences. We don't talk about it. We don't share. We feel like we're alone. How can we actually educate and build more of a community for people, so that, you know, it, 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 I think we can, as a community, we can uplift and we can help. And, uh, you know, especially through all the periods of isolation through COVID, I, I really feel like that's so important now. And, but thinking about a community in a very safe way as well, and a very supportive and like, and positive first way um, is, is something that I've been uh, thinking a lot about because of some of these trends. And with that, I think community is so key because even now through the podcast, when I talk to guests, we're able to relate to one another about we've been there where we were let down by someone or had the same kind of experience in a corporate setting or whatever it is. I think communication is the bridge that will allow us to realize we're not an island. We're actually all really connected. Um, What tools do you normally suggest for women to explore. Obviously, Lovelock is a great community and uh, links for that will be in this episode show notes, but are there books you recommend or what are those like initial steps outside of, of course, going and seeking help or doing talk therapy or any form of therapy really? You know, just kind of going down the list of, you know, different levels of options. So even within therapy, people always think about individual therapy, but there are other types of therapy, like group therapy, right? So there's group therapy, but, you know, a facilitator or a leader, which can kind of really um, help to, you know, especially for much more sensitive, you know, kind of issues um, that might be a safer way to kind of get that kind of community support so the groups you know supports then there are really tried and true vetted like support community support systems like for um you know uh uh like women and their families who are going through infertility like resolve right and so it's, it's a very you know kind of um uh secure way to get that kind of community support or of course like mental health issues like NAMI and you know so for um, postpartum support international groups for things like you know so I think it is worthwhile to try to find some vetted sources for more of those community support groups Um, obviously in terms of you know some types of communities are like the Facebook groups and those kind of things I think you can get um, 
at different levels of, you know, how like facilitated are they, right? Like how, what, what is the group member kind of, you know, like demographic, that kind of thing. And so you're just not sure, but they, I, I will say, I mean, for some things, it can be also very helpful too. Fitness and nutrition play such mm-hmm. a key role. Can you talk about how that does affect mental health? A lot of people don't realize what you're eating can throw off your hormones so much and throw off how your body feels. So, you know, that's also part of the reason why I wanted to create Love Luck. So uh, I will say first and foremost, you know, individual, you know, therapy and, you know, seeing a psychiatrist, medication management, absolutely. Those are absolutely important things and good for you. And, you know, um, I don't want to diminish those roles at all. I mean, that's what I do, right? But I think we forget about all the other things that can be so helpful, not even as an augmenting strategy, but even a standalone, you know, in terms of, and we, we, you know, we have so much emphasis that, you know, what's good for your mental health is go get support, go seek out therapy, get medications, but it doesn't always equate. It doesn't have to be just therapy or psychiatrist. It can be so many other things. And that's my goal is to like, is really help get that word out that, you know what, that, you know, early morning sunshine, the walk. And, and my goal is to not only just say that because it's easy to say it, but I find that when people understand the evidence or the reason why they're more likely to say, Oh, that's convincing to me. I actually believe that to be true. So I find that I will then follow through with it. Right. When you just tell people, Oh, breathe. You're like, ah, Okay, fine. But when I stop and I show them like the vagus nerve and how it runs down from the brainstem and actually goes side by side down through the diaphragm and each time you breathe up it like the diaphragmatic breath, it will trigger the vagus nerve. And then like once they see the anatomy of that, then it's like, oh, okay, I get it. Why? And the vagus nerve goes back and, you know, stimulates the parasympathetic nerve. Like people actually, they want the information And I think with that evidence and the data, it really compels them to take action, right? If they don't have that information, the data, then you're just like, okay, well, yeah, just breathe, like, sure, right? And so it's the same thing with like the diet and exercise, you know, this whole movement in terms of like um, food as medicine, right? So even the data on omega-3 fatty acids, now emerging evidence in terms, you know, the the keto diet and mood stabilization, you know, and, and treatment for really severely mentally ill patients with just the keto diet, right? That's super exciting. But we also know things that are tried and true, like the Mediterranean diet, right? And that for depression, and even walking, which is so I just wrote a post about this. But you know, it's clinically proven. So walking 30, you know, whatever that might be, or moderate exercise for 30 minutes, two to three times a a week, actually has just as good evidence as an antidepressant, or even as cognitive behavioral therapy, right? I mean, again, those are those are things that can be helpful for you. But I think when we say to people, oh, go get support, go get therapy for, you know, mental health issues, we forget to also say, these are also really other good alternatives as well. And when we spoke last time, we talked about this. I think that people think, oh, I'm in therapy one hour out of the week, and that's going to cure everything or fix how I feel. And that's not the case. It is putting those habits in place and that you're consistent and deciding what those habits are going to look like 
moving your body 30 minutes every day, even if it's just Mm -hmm. stretching, like moving, what are you eating? What are you reading? What are you listening to? If you're constantly on your phone, comparing yourself to these, like, you know, Instagram, TikTok influencers, yeah, you're going to feel bad about yourself because that's not reality. So what are you surrounding yourself? You mentioned walking. I'm a huge walker, but Mm -hmm. I love to listen to Audible. So different Mm -hmm. books or podcasts that are informative or inspiring because it's how, what am I feeding my brain as well as my body? And that's something that it takes a lot of work. You do have to be consistent. I actually, um, listen to a podcast and someone mentioned a habit tracker. So I purchased mm-hmm. one and every month I'm like, these are the habits I want to do. Mm-hmm. And you cross them off every day and it's some form of accountability. But I think the biggest issue I've seen is people complain they want to change, but what work are they putting in to help solve it besides just going to therapy? Well, Mallory, that's exactly the reason why, again, and I kind of point because with Moon Mental Health, I, I love that. I love what I do. But like we talked about before, it's one hour out of the week, right? And and actually, I find that, you know, there really has to be a way to augment that therapy with, again, these daily interventions, these daily ways to take care of yourself, you know, through these habits. And so I've really been interested in this notion of like, habits, right? And habit creation and how to use those habits to improve your mental health. And again, the lucky thing. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. And, and the thing is though, actually to do those habits, you don't necessarily need to always be in those, you know, one-on-ones. Like I said, I almost find that like that habit should be, you know, in conjunction or almost like part of the treatment plan with what I offer my patients. Getting some sunshine, getting outside fresh air sometimes can be just as helpful as an antidepressant. I read a study where Mm -hmm. they talked about going on walks in the woods helps lower your heart rate. It helps decrease stress because you're walking the greenery. There's so much oxygen while you're around all these trees that it really helps you so much, even like 30 minutes. So it's interesting when we talk about mental health, there is another side to it and component to getting to your best self, I guess. And obviously there are some points of mental health where walking, eating, what you're listening to, it's not going to cut it. You do need medication. You do need one-on-one therapy or, you know, more extensive medical help. I don't want anyone to think I'm just saying, oh, go on a walk, you'll feel fine. That's definitely not it. But I think there is a very large spectrum and you have to try to use all the tools at your disposal. Exactly, Mallory. And I'm glad that you raised that because, you know, of course, as a psychiatrist who does, you know, utilize a whole array of different, you know, medications, including antidepressants, antipsychotics, you know, and anxiolytics, all those things, um, those are absolutely necessary and can be life changing and life-saving and so I don't want me to take away from that at all and I do feel that those are just one um those are just some of the tools that we have and to really not forget about um you know all the other tools and maximizing all the tools that we can in someone's care and I think the first step and it's a scary step sometimes to do is to say I need help I don't feel Mm -hmm. right something doesn't feel right advocate for your health, even if 
you're a mom and you have kids or you're busy looking after parents, you know, it's like that saying when you're on the airplane, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then you can help others. So I feel women sometimes have a hard time raising their hands saying like, I need help. What would you recommend to those listeners who maybe feel like they need some support or they just haven't been feeling themselves? They don't know what to do. What are those first few steps you would recommend? You know, it's interesting that you raise this point because actually studies have shown us that people usually, I mean, in some of the studies, they will wait up to eight years before they even get help. So they're suffering in silence, living in de- with depression. And again, not perhaps uh, many folks don't even really realize that that's what's going on, right? It's hard to know when you've just been acclimated and living like this and trudging through and like, this is depression, this is treatable. This is absolutely something I can get help for. The fr- You know, one of the easiest ways I would say to start start this, and people forget about all the time is, speak to your primary care physician, you know, they actually um, treat much more, um, you know, of, of the population in terms of, you know, depression, anxiety, than even psychiatrists do, because psychiatrists, we see a smaller, you know, population, I think obviously, there aren't as many, you know, primary care docs, your OB, your, you know, your medical doctor. Um, and so they are very well equipped, and, you know, very well trained in terms of, you know, really sitting down with you, identifying, you know, if there's a mental illness, you know, uh, giving you a psychiatric diagnosis and starting treatment right then and there. Um, And so that, you know, I don't, again, I think this is something that people really forget to, you know, tap into, like they have a physician, they have a doctor, they have, you know, a a healthcare clinician in their team, on their teams. And um, that that's one option to reach out to. And then where do you want to take Lovelock? Because I love the idea. I think that sense of community is so important, especially with women. And thankfully, we live in the age where it can be a global community where you can be talking and have support from someone across the country or even in a different country. But what are your goals for that? So my main goal is really trying to find some way to make things accessible. So I, I have to admit, so um, I get my recipes from Instagram. I do my workout videos from YouTube. You know, I learn all my DIY hacks from, you know, like there's so much learning out there and I'm so appreciative that I can actually tap into that. And so in the same way, I really want to find a way to give back in a sense, you know, in terms of being able to share like this is what I what I would want for me, for my sisters, for my family, for my daughters. Like I like like think about this, you know. Think about this, you know. And and again, outside of that clinical, relate, you know, therapeutic relationship, what could I share with people? And that's so. So first off, is about really sharing, you know, what I can, really educating people in terms of what are really good things that they can try with the evidence to support it, right? Like. I don't want to be, you know, going, you know, looking for information from a place where I don't actually know if this is someone who's practicing, what their, you know, like licensure is, like, is it based on evidence? Is it not? So really, you know, kind of providing information in a very thoughtful way. And then also the next step is then to really think about, well, what could could a community look like? What could maybe a community who wants to work is on this habit, right? Who wants to work is work on like, you know, choosing healthier food options with mental health in mind. Like what could that look like? So that would be the next step. 
Wonderful. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with me. I found your story so inspiring, which is why I reached out because I do think that mental health is something I'm so passionate about removing that stigma that it's Mm -hmm. not any different than if you had any other illness, that it still deserves the respect. And those who raise their hands and say, I'm not okay. I need help. Something's wrong. It's the same thing that when you go and get treatment for any other disease versus it's not like a sign of weakness. And I hope that the younger generations and even the older generations start to look at it in that light more so. So thank you for all the work that you do. I end every episode with the same three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? So this one I will share with you. It's by Viktor Frankl. um, And this one really defines, I think, my purpose. And so it's the quote, which starts with, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. So what I love about that is that there is this opportunity, the space for us to really choose how we want to interact and engage with the life around us. And I think that's a very powerful thing and one that I hope that I can spread to others as well. That's a beautiful quote. Thank you for sharing. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you pick? So Mallory, I'm going to have to say that I don't have one day. Um, I try to rack my brain and think about it, but I think ultimately I try to really enjoy each day as much as I can. And so um, I really can't choose one that I would want to relive. That's okay. We've had guests say that too. It's really great that that was your answer still that your mindset was, I just want to really live every day fully, which is what I think Mm -hmm. we should all strive to do more. So the final question is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you pick? Okay. This one is um, uh, partly because I love her, but also because I just think this song is amazing. It's girl on fire by Alicia Keys. Wonderful. I will be adding that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist so listeners can hear your theme song along with everyone else's. And again, Linda, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful to speak with you. I'm so excited to see where Love Lock goes and grows in the community that you build because I have no doubt that you will be building a community of strong women. Thank you, Mallory. I am so thankful and grateful to be here today with you. 